Well, we're back. Um, we had the uh, joy. This is actually my opening illustration. It just sounds like I'm just chit-chatting. Uh, we, had the, we had the joy of going back home to Indiana. That's uh, home for us uh, way back, way, way back in the day. We got to Indianapolis, saw Debbie's aunt. You want to know all this, right? Went to Muncie, my hometown. That's just almost everybody I'm, well, everybody I'm related to in Muncie is pretty much gone. Uh, but we saw old friends, and we got up to see my uh, stepmother and half-sister in Warsaw, Indiana, over to Brims to play a little golf with my nephew on the way out. So it was just kind of a all things Indiana. And a lot of things have changed in uh, the many, many uh, years since we lived there. Some things good, th- some things not so good. But one of the things that changed that's, uh, that's really sad, I drove by the old church that I went to as a teenager. I won't mention the denomination. You'd probably be able to piece it together. Big old stately church, um, you know, big brick building, um, and they had clothes. They closed. They, uh, they, the tiny little congregation that was left there moved and, and joined with another congregation, so now they have two struggling little congregations trying to make one church. The last actual pastor of that church was an out-of-the-closet practicing homosexual. Maybe part of why that church didn't make it, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to say. Um, I want to talk to you today about a good, right, proper struggle for the local church, really being engaged in fighting the good fight for the local church. Now, understand when we're talking about Christ's church in the world, universal, throughout the world, throughout time and space, that's not in any danger. We're not, we're not worried that somehow his church is going to collapse and fail. But if we're talking about a local church, it is possible, as, as was the case in the church that I was raised in, for a local church to be ruined. And I, if, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would wager that for those who are my age or, and probably a lot younger ones as well, you can say, yeah, there was a church I once went to that was on the right path or seemed to be on the right path, and it's not there anymore. You think about the book of Revelation where it talks, where Jesus mentions removing a lampstand from one of the churches, the possibility of that. And I think that means that that church has failed, in, whether it continues to, to go on for a time, it's, it's dead even when it is alive. We want to fight for the biblical church, for the church which is Christ-centered gospel preaching. We the, the, the word here is struggle. Paul struggles. Struggle for the Christ-centered gospel church. If you're part of a church that's not gospel-centered, if it's not preaching the word of God, if it's not Christ-centered, then that you can fight if you want to. That probably it, it could work out. It could. Some churches um, come back from the death, from the dead. But for the most part, the churches that we should be struggling for are those that are preaching the gospel. Seems to me that Paul is engaged in that struggle pretty clearly. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those that allow to see it and for all who have not seen me face to face. And we're going to soon get into the whole idea of what that struggle was about, about the false teaching that Paul is coming up against. But that word struggle, uh, you'll see it also in the book of Ephesians. It's, it's translated differently there for whatever reason. That's what translators do sometimes. They think there's a little nuance here that's not over here in this context, so they'll, they'll change the translation. But it's Ephesians 6.12. 
See if you can figure out what the word struggle is in this one. For we do not wrestle, <laughs> wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Could you figure out which word was the word struggle there? Yeah, that, that implies that it's more, you know, we, you might struggle to get your jeans on in the morning, um, but that's not, that's not how this word is being used. It, we're talking about being engaged. This, this is a fight, if you will. It's, it's a fight. So we're going to look at four strategic goals in this battle for the church, and the first of these is struggle for encouraged hearts. Struggle for encouraged hearts. Paul says of his struggle that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. And I don't think it's strange when Paul's thinking about struggling for the church that the first thought that he has for the church has to do with their hearts. Because again, what we're talking about is a church that is being infiltrated with false teachings. And one of the very first things that, that false teachers do is they end up discouraging people. I believe that once you move away from the gospel, any teaching you put in its place, though it may sound very lofty and grand and, and, and have all sorts of fanfare, ultimately it's discouraging to the heart of the believer. I'll give you an example. Now, back, way back in the 1970s when I was a very, just a pup, really, um, I, was, I was part of a movement which would be associated with the charismatic movement, um, one, at least one portion of it. And um, we kind of referred to it, and people referred to it as the Name It, Claim It uh, group. You know those? Yeah, I, are they still around? I think they've kind of morphed into the health and wealth movement over time, but what they used to re refer to us as name it, claim it, and that's really, that got at the heart of kind of what was taught in those, in those churches. The idea was that if you wanted something from God, you just named it, and you claimed it, and if you had strong enough faith, which anyone could have, it was, a, it was like, do this, 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 and this, and, you'll, and it, one of them was you always had to say the right thing. Like, it, it, you could have your nose running and, and dripping off onto your shirt, and if somebody said, do you have a cold, you had to say, no, I don't. No, I'm fine. And that was that, yeah, that, was that faith profession. And I remember being crushed at one point, because in that movement, if you were sick, that was on you. That was on you. You didn't have enough faith. And there was a guy that was in the hospital, and he laid dying, and, and he was uh, a friend of a friend, and we, we were both of this sort of following this belief and we claimed his healing and we were bold and we were outspoken we were loud to everyone around us that God was going to raise that guy up and it didn't matter what the doctor said and he died and he died and uh, it crushed us I felt crushed it's like wait I did everything right that's what false teaching can do it can absolutely discourage you and I could tell other stories Many false teachings are versions of legalism, and that seemed to be the case at Colossae. The grace of Christ is, is lowered, it is diminished, the cross of Christ is de-emphasized, and the emphasis becomes rituals. It becomes rituals, avoiding outward kinds of behavior, rule-keeping. Now, we shouldn't be altogether against all rule-keeping, should we? Because <laughs> the, the commandments are rules. 
And we ought to obey God. That is absolutely central. But, but what I'm talking about is that kind of, that very outward performative kind of thing where we're just kind of doing little checklists and we're, we're remaining pure. It, this was largely, and when we get to it, we'll see that it's largely tied in with Jewish dietary law. When we get into the, the nitty-gritty of this false teaching, and, and, and yeah, it's all, about, uh, it's all about circumcision. It's all about what we eat. It's all about what we don't eat, and so on and so forth. It kind of replaces the emphasis on the gospel. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. By grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So both of, both of those, and, and we could go on, there would be other kinds of false teachings, but this kind of hits a couple categories. What both of those do is they get their eyes off of Christ, they get our eyes off of Christ, and onto us. It's like, what have I done that's good enough to please God? What, what can I do? Oh, my faith isn't good enough. I need, to, I need to say the right things. I need to think the right things in order to make things happen, you see. Instead of trusting a sovereign God that we pray to and ask Him, and we ask for healings, and we should ask for healings, but the idea that we can control that, that gets all our, all our attention becomes us, and when it fails, if it fails, which it will eventually because we're not God, it's crushing. And we can't keep all, all of those various and sundry rules. And Paul is struggling here with mental anguish and fervent prayer for the churches in Colossae and Laodicea. He wants their hearts to be strong. He wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to be strengthened, like the writer of Hebrews says, with grace with the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As long as I've been at grace, I have sought with the elders to hold fast to a model of church based on just a healthy, you might say, bread and butter, meat and potatoes kind of church. Like we've, we've, we've wanted to preach the gospel, preach the word of God, be very clear, have it flow from that, have the gospel at the focus of what we do, and whatever else we have time and energy for should all kind of cooperate with that. But we've not chased down every single movement that's come through. And I know some people have probably gotten discouraged by that in their own way, discouraged like, oh, well, why didn't we try this? Because that church over there did it. And oh my goodness, they're just, they're just growing and they're, they're busting through the, the, the walls over there. It's, so, it's working so well. And it's like, okay, well, God bless them. You know, that's, that's okay, but what, we, we've, we've remained true to the fundamentals, if you will, because we believe that that is, is where we get, we're encouraged. That's where our hearts will be encouraged. You know, busyness alone does not a good church make or whatever else people may want to substitute for that. So, that's the first thing. Secondly, struggle for loving community that grows toward assurance, Second half of the verse, it says, uh, of, of two, it says, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is in Christ. Now, take this apart real quickly, and I don't have time to really camp out here. But what, what, is it, what does Paul want for them, for these encouraged hearts? He wants them to be growing together in love. That's big. They're growing together in love. He wants them to be, as they're growing together in love, growing in assurance, 
which would be with regard to the gospel. Yes? And he wants them to be growing in understanding and knowing. This has a parallel in Ephesians. I'll read that really quickly. You'll see the connection, the similarity. He says there in Ephesians, From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, the interesting thing is the words knit together in Colossians 2 and the word held together in Ephesians for it's the same word in the Greek. Isn't that interesting? A strong and loving church is a church which is moving toward maturity because the whole body is joining together, being knit together, being built up together unto maturity. It's not a church that's blown hither and yon by every wind of false doctrine. It's a loving, Christ-filled group of people who are growing together. It's stable because the people within it are sitting under the teaching of the Word and themselves in their own life are growing up in the Word and then they're taking the gifts that God has given each member of the body and they're coming together and they're uniting together in love. They're growing. And and what does that lead to? It leads to greater assurance. It It leads to greater stability. Protection against the very things that Paul is concerned with here, against false doctrine. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, right? That's a truism that we all know. Here's the question. Are you connecting in love, dear Christian, with the body of Christ? Here at Grace, it's a very simple thing. We We don't, like, not a lot of bells and whistles. We have certain ways and opportunities for you to connect. We want you to grow together. So being here on Sunday morning, that's a huge thing, isn't it? Just Sunday morning worship is very important. You get discipled through the Word of God. You see one another. You get to greet one another and be with each other for a short period of time. We have the adult Bible fellowships, which a little bit more commitment. You come a little earlier. You have more time with a smaller group of people. We have clusters. We have the 5-2 meal. And there's different ways for you to get connected. But the question is, are you? Are are you utilizing that? Love and faith grow together as the body is being joined together. Are you participating in that? You need good leaders in a church. It's true, and leaders should be in prayer. Elders should be praying for their people and shepherding their people, and we, we seek to engage in that here at the church. But if... If you don't give priority to that yourself, if the people don't connect, then all that could could be seen as wasted. The picture Paul gives in Colossians and in Ephesians is, is a body in which every member is joined together growing. Effectively, that's how we grow as Christians is what Paul would say. Being united together in the Lord in a church, in a local church, with the Word of God there, you know, leading us onward. That is how we grow. But if we don't do those, if, if we remain, you know, free of those things and free of other connections to Christians and we spend all our time in the world and, and practically none with fellow believers, then we're going to be immature. And guess what that's going to lead to according to this book? Being immature 
and then falling for anything. How many want to fall for anything spiritually? You just want to be deceived routinely as a, just a course of... Anybody feel that way? You like to be duped? No, but if you, a spirit, the most important thing in your whole life is the Lord and your relationship to Him and where you're going. And so you, you, you need to invest in the body of believers for the sake of your own spiritual maturity and theirs. It's not just you. It's also what you bring to the table and what you can do for others. All right, thirdly, struggle to treasure Christ. Struggle to treasure Christ. It says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Christ is the source, according to Paul here, of all true wisdom and knowledge. So when you become a Christian, your IQ just like skyrockets. You get like about 40 more points. You become Stephen Hawking because in Christ are all... No, okay. I I feel like I heard somebody go, no. Yeah, in the context, what's Paul talking about here? When he talks about all uh, wisdom and all knowledge, he's He's talking about spiritual wisdom and knowledge as it pertains to our walk with the Lord and our salvation. Christ is the truth, the the center of the truth of the Scripture. It, it, It all points to Him. It flows from Him. Christ is how we know God. Christ is how we come to understand who God is. It's how we please God. It's how we worship God. We don't become mature and knowledgeable in the faith by rituals and schemes of false teachers who come along pumping something else. We come to it through the gospel of Christ. False teachers boast of having secret knowledge that's only there for the pure and for the initiated. And what does Paul say? You can have it. I could almost hear Paul say you can stuff it uh, (laughs) to the false teachers. Take, you know, you got all this great stuff, just, just keep it to yourselves. Because the treasure of wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Christ. It was like, well, how, how hidden is it? It's hidden like here, X marks the spot. Do you want treasure? You don't have to go on an Indiana Jones-style crusade hoping, you know, to put all the clues together and finally eventually get to the treasure. It's not finding a secret passage within the pyramids or something like that. It's like, here, dig here. The treasure's Christ, and he's here, right? And he's here. Dig, okay? Just go there. Everything you want, it's, it's right there in plain sight. It's like the movie It's a Wonderful Life. Some of you um, will find that humorous in and of it itself. Only because I think I can literally use something from It's a Wonderful Life every Sunday if I want to. I try, I try to hold back. But, you know, after all, George Bailey, he's so upset because he hasn't reached his full potential. And he, gets, he just gets downhearted about his life in Little Bedford Falls. And, of course, by the end of the, by the, end of the movie, all at once, what does he realize? It was all right here staring him in the face the whole time. The treasure, his treasure are those people in his life that, 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 that surround him, his community, his wife, his children, all of those things. It's like, it's right there. Believers have the same thing. We have this treasure that's beyond comprehension in Christ. All has been given to us in him. He is the image of God. In him is all the fullness of, of, of deity displayed. He's the fullness of, of love and mercy and truth and grace. And, and yet we can miss him because he's right in front of our eyes. 
He's just right there. You know, every Sunday we're, we're right there, and, and we can just start to miss what is so blindingly obvious right in front of us. It's Christ. It's Christ. We can be like Naaman. How many remember the story of Naaman, the leper? Right? He was like Syrian from Aram, and he was a leper, so he was suffering from a very bad you know, skin disease. And, uh, and, and his slave girl, he's got, he's got a slave girl who's from Israel, and she says, you should go talk to the prophet in Israel because he could heal you. And he's like, well, I got nothing better to you know, do. I might as well try. And he goes down to, to Israel, and he tells the king, you know, hey, I need to be healed of my leprosy. And the king's like, oh, I'm not God. What am I going to do? And so he sends him to Elijah. And he doesn't even get a face-to-face with Elijah. And this really miffs him. He gets, like, close to his house, and Elijah sends his servant to meet him. He's like, hey, you know, don't bother. Uh, just go to the Jordan River and wash seven times, and you'll be, you'll be cleansed. And Naaman is just stomping his feet mad at this. He's like, come on, man. I mean, I came all this way. He could come out here and wave his hands over me. You know, a little hocus-pocus, something, face-to-face, eye-to-eye, lay his hand on me, put some ointment on, I don't know. And all he's saying is, there's rivers back in Syria. And his servants are like, dude, you came all this way. If If he'd asked you to do something hard, would you have done that? Well, yeah. Well, this is really simple, so just go do it. And he does it, and, and his skin becomes like that of a newborn baby. But he didn't, it's like, no, it can't be that simple. It's got to be hard. It's got to be complex. There's got to be all kinds of rules and, and rituals that you have to precisely follow for this thing to work. It can't just be as simple as this one simple act of faith staring you in the face. Dear Christian, beware of the something more crowd. I, I tell you what, the last three, four decades of the church has been littered, littered with this and that new movement promising something more. Oh, keep Jesus, of course. Well, we'll still talk about Jesus. But there's this other, oh my goodness, these things that have been revealed to us that you need to get into and understand and these practices which will get you so much further than that just ordinary old, you know, get together, hear the word, take the Lord's table, you know. It's so much more than that, they want to say. And I would just say, you know what, without throwing them all into one basket, I'm sure there's good things here and there, but um, beware of that. Beware of the things that come along promising great things that just add a little something to Jesus. I remember a dear young lady years ago who told us that she was restless in her faith. She was a co-worker uh, to Debbie and me back, way, way back in the day. And the last we talked to her, she was telling us of how she just felt restless. I mean, she loved Jesus, but she, here's what she said. And it sounded so spiritual. And it will sound spiritual to you as well, I think. She said, I just think Jesus has so much more. So she went on a quest, and I think she literally was going to go join what I think is probably a cult because of things she heard about what they were experiencing with the Lord. You see, what she was wanting, she was, she, she was claiming to want more of Jesus, but I think what it was was she wanted more experience. She wanted, to, she wanted it to sizzle a little bit more, and she was impatient with the old way of what God has given us in his word, in the body, in the Lord's table together, that that wasn't enough anymore. 
And I fear, I fear thinking where it all ended up for her. Don't overcomplicate the gospel. Don't overcomplicate what it means to, to become stable in your faith. And I think that's worth struggling for. I don't know if you're with me on, I don't know if we're on the same page or not, but, but I think a, a clear, simple, healthy gospel church is worth fighting for. It's worth struggling for. And I'm not talking about the Alamo. I'm not, I, this is not a cry, you know, all right, you know, Texans, let's get to your posts and die a good death, you know, hurrah. No, I'm, 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 not, I'm thinking of Helm's Deep for you Lord of the Rings fans. I'm, I'm thinking of, of, of Agincourt. I'm thinking of Rourke's Drift. I'm thinking of the Battle of Fort McHenry. We struggle for the church as we rightly should, as Paul did, but we struggle with the Lord of hosts in the lead, who has the whole armies of heaven in his train. It's worth struggling for a biblical church. Finally, struggle against plausible-sounding delusions. Paul says it this way. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And we are starting to finally get into, you know, I've been talking about it all along to give you the context but all along we've been saying that he's going to get to these false teachings. And now he's starting to introduce the topic of those who would delude them. What does it mean to delude? I'll let you think about that for a moment. Um, it, it's interesting. I did a little word study. The word delude in Greek um, is used in the Old Testament, in the Greek Old Testament. Yes, it was written in Hebrew, but... By Jesus' day, they were reading a Greek version of their own Bible. How strange. Most of them didn't read the Hebrew Bible. They read the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. When you track this word down, this word that gets translated delude here, it's interesting that every time that I found that it was used, there was always this kind of um, chicanery involved. Uh, trickery. People were being bamboozled and hornswoggled and hoodwinked and... Isn't it weird how all these words that mean that are all goofy-sounding words? I think that's, that's kind of strange if you ask me. But um, anyway, I'll give you three examples really quickly in the Old Testament where this word delude is used. Okay, first of all, Laban, when he, when he tricked Jacob into marrying Leah. How many remember that one? Yeah? I mean, he hornswoggled him, didn't he? Totally. Yeah. And then, and then uh, another one is, uh, is uh, Samson who eventually got tricked by Delilah, but in the meantime, he kept tricking her. Yeah, she said, why, you know, basically, why are you deluding me? Why do you keep tricking me? Because she'd say, where's your strength come from? I need to know where your strength comes from. And he'd go, well, if you buy me with seven, you know, new cords, then I'll be as weak as anyone else. And, and go, oh, why are you deluding me? You're tricking me. That was what she was basically. And then, of course, the best of them all was the Gibeonites. How many remember the story of the Gibeonites? Any, a few Gibeonites? Yes. Oh, I love that story. You know, Israel comes in. They've been told to, to destroy the inhabitants of Canaan when they get there. We, we don't love that part of the story, but that's part of the story that God gives them the land and uh, restores it to them, and they are to drive out all the inhabitants, including the Gibeonites, as it turned out, but they didn't know that. 
And the Gibeonites saw the writing on the wall, so they'd go through this whole incredible ruse. They get old clothing and put old clothing on. They get sandals with holes in them, and they put moldy bread in their in their knapsacks. And they come to uh, you know to Joshua, and they're like, "Hey, we're from a far away country, really, really far away. You know, so just on the off chance that we should ever meet in battle, let's just make a covenant that you know you won't destroy us." Joshua's like, hmm, how far away are you? Oh, we're really, really far away. Well, okay, well, then let's do that. So they make a covenant, and then they're like, uh, we tricked you because <laughs> we actually live right here in your backyard, and you signed a covenant, so you're done. They deluded them. They deluded them. There's always this idea with delusion of being tricked, of being told a lie. Paul fears that this is happening at Colossae and Laodicea. The tricksters are the false Teachers And what the false teachers are basically doing is, is trying to say, hey, we're just like every other church. We're just like every other Christian teacher. We just have a little more. Yeah? We can just offer you a little something extra, not just that old standard Christian thing. We're, we're Christianity plus. And, and so they deluded them. Now, if you have a passing knowledge of Scripture, I think there's a lot of things out there that you would never even begin to be deluded by. I say that, but then people keep buying the books, so I, maybe I'm wrong in that. Somebody's got to be buying some of those things, but I'm, I'm assuming that if you have a little bit of Bible knowledge, if, you, you know, if, you, if you've been reading the Word, coming to church, I, I think some of these things probably wouldn't catch you. But those aren't the scariest, are they? It's not this guy that, yeah, there was, I was hearing about this translation, and the main translator has claimed to go up into heaven and talk to Billy Graham, and God supposedly expanded his mind by 10 or 20%, and all kinds of crazy stuff. So it's like, well, you know, those aren't the people that scare me. The ones that scare me are the ones that have plausible arguments. The ones that, that, that could literally deceive you. I remember when I was young and I was reading my Bible early on and, and I didn't have a teacher or anyone kind of come alongside of me. And I, I remember reading where Jesus said, you know, beware false prophets and false Christs who will come. Do you remember that? And then he says, because they'll deceive, if it were possible, even the elect. And I didn't know what elect meant. But <laughs> that sounded pretty scary. These guys are, these guys are convincing they, they, they could sell you almost anything, kind of, kind of a deal. And, and I thought, how, how am I going to avoid that? Paul's painting a picture here of very tricky charlatans who delude people with plausible arguments. How do you recognize them? Well, let me give you a, a couple examples of, uh, that may help. Um, they're not exhaustive at all. But um, these false teachers will generally take you away from Christ, from the centrality of his work. I would go so far as to say they always, they always take us away from the centrality of the true Christ of Scripture. They will place other things alongside of Christ. Generally, they are things that you must accomplish, accomplish in order to be saved. Often they will claim that they have come to a perfect understanding of what others call a hard-to-translate passage. You know, like, oh, what does Paul mean when he says, why are some of you baptized for the dead? What is he talking about there? And then the Mormon church comes along and goes, we know exactly what that means, and, and uh, we're getting baptized for all our ancestors, and come join us, and whatever else the case may be. They'll generally be driven by 
works, by a works righteousness. Ultimately, if you know the gospel, you will see that it is not the gospel that you know. It will not, it won't pass the smell test. There'll be something off. It'll be like, it sounds a little bit, kind of has some of the same language, but it's no longer the gospel. The other thing that you might notice is a, a tendency to either allow what the scripture forbids or to forbid what the scripture allows. Look for that. There'll be some little act of legalism. Like, well, I never heard you couldn't do that. Oh, yeah, you can't do that. Absolutely, you cannot do that. Um, or it's, uh, oh, yeah, you thought that was wrong? God wants you to do that. I'll never forget there was this, um, this cult called The Way. Does anybody here remember The Way International? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, back in the 1970s, they were really big. I don't know if they're still going or not. They had their convention in Muncie, Indiana. To bring Muncie back into it one more time, uh, and it was it was weird. Uh, it was a big convention, a lot of a lot of smell of marijuana emanating from the Ball State campus that that weekend. Because their thing was to make grace abound, we should sin all the more. Didn't Paul say something like that? He said something like that. Uh, <laughs> so they were like sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and and. It, 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 that, it was like, do that all the more, and then God's glorified by that. And I'm like, hmm, hmm, that isn't, isn't quite, it's attractive, but it doesn't quite seem right to me. And then I found out they didn't even believe in the Trinity, and I, I kept them at arm's length. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we need solid, biblical, Christ-preaching, gospel-centered churches. Are you willing to struggle for that? Are you willing to, and, and maybe, I know I get worked up, and you might think um, that I'm talking about being really pugnacious and, and, and you know, wanting to start a fight with every other church in town and that kind of, that is not what I'm talking about. Paul, in that Ephesians passage, when he talks about wrestling, he says, not against flesh and blood. We don't have to become unpleasant, but what we do need to do is be clear-eyed and resolved and firm in our convictions. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. Struggle with all the strength that he gives to the church. And that has to come from leaders in the church, but it also has to come from the pew. It does no good if the, if the pew wants it and the leadership is rotten. That doesn't work. But if the leadership is leading, but the people aren't following, I'm not saying you're not, I'm just saying if, then that won't work either, will it? We need the whole body of believers growing up in assurance and treasuring Christ at the heart of it all. We talked a lot about the gospel today. If you are here and you don't know the gospel, I want to make sure that I explain that, and, and I don't have a lot of time, but it doesn't really require a lot of time in one sense. Because at its simplest, the gospel is that God sent His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to save Sinners, we were lost. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Christ came into the world. He died for sinners. He was raised from the dead on the third day, such that when we repent, we talked about that earlier, when we repent, which is from going our own way and turning to Christ, if we repent and trust in Jesus Christ, we will be saved. But having been saved, having come to trust in Christ, we don't stop. We don't believe him once, repent once, and call it good. It is a life that he calls us to. It is a life in him, and it is a life, it's a life where, where we live in 
a community of believers called a church. And so if you come to Christ, we would, we would love to have you become part of the church. There are other churches that we're not saying we're the only church. I was, <laughs> that's another thing about false teachers. Generally, they're the only church. We're not saying that. We're just saying we want to be that kind of church that Paul is talking about here. Let's pray. That is our desire, Lord. We're not, we're not wanting to create something uh, new that, that has not existed before, something, um, yeah, that would be, that would be weird and, uh, and, and not good. We want to walk that old path. We want to be a, a healthy church that treasures Christ, a church that is knit together, growing. We pray for our people for deeper commitments where they are maybe lacking in some cases, a deeper commitment to really connect with the, with the people of God. We need one another, Lord, in order to grow up that we might not be blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that we might not be deluded by plausible arguments, and they can sound plausible, Lord. We want to see our church grow in maturity so that we may be encouraged of heart and strong in grace, strong in Christ, and really know him who is the treasure, Lord, that you've given us. And Lord, I pray that you would use the message of the gospel today to reach hearts that may have been closed before, but that by your spirit you've opened them and that that seed of the gospel might fall in their heart and be awakened to faith and new life in Christ. And we will give you all the praise for it in his name. Amen.